Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 135, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to His name, for it is lovely. Let us do so now by singing together hymn number 4.
please be seated. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you again uh, for the gift of worship and uh, the gift of Christian fellowship. Uh, Never has it been more precious to us than it is now, uh, and yet never has it felt more in jeopardy uh, than it is now as well. Uh, As we as we nearly wrap up this year, what has been a a perplexing year to us, Lord. There's no other way to put it. Uh, And and as we found. Uh, Christian fellowship and Christian liberty as as the very things that we have had to re-examine together as a church and even our whole relationship to the state uh, and and things like public health we never we never anticipated this and we confess we were totally unprepared for it but Lord it, that's the way you are we recognize that you like to shake things up and and even that is a, a totally inadequate way to express your providence but that's how it is to us. Uh, you, you come in and you disrupt. There, there is a better word. Your providence is disruptive because we are so complicit and complacent, uh, and, and we do not, uh, we do not, uh, on our own reach to, to greater heights and, uh, n- nor do we, do we dig deep to examine our foundations. But you, Lord Jesus, tell us to do both. You tell us to build on the rock, to always be concerned about the foundation because when the storm comes, we don't want to be knocked over. We want to find that we're still standing. Certainly that metaphor has a great bearing on our own day. But we also want to be building something that is wonderful and worthy of your glory. By that we don't mean grand cathedrals. We mean uh, a lifetime of devotion and discipleship. And so gracious Father, we ask you that you would help us to do both and that you would keep on helping us. And, and, and so long as you are disrupting our lives like this, uh, we ask you that you would bring great clarity to the church and to us individually as Christians and households. We ask you, I uh, keep on asking you, Lord, for courage to face an uncertain future. We pray for our nation and our land. Lord, we love our country. We don't pretend as Christians that uh, we, we want to get into heaven and we hate where you have us now. Lord, uh, you, you've richly blessed Protestants here in America, more so than in any other land historically. And we are we are greatly indebted to you. You are the the giver or the grantor of of liberty, of Christian liberty, of religious liberty. We praise you for that, Lord. And we pray that we might be able to hold on to it and to preserve it by your uh, special care for the church in this land. And so we, we raise a prayer up to you, Lord, on behalf of the churches, but also on behalf of our country. We pray for your will to be done, Lord. It would seem that's all we know to pray because we don't know what to ask for. But we know that you establish the civil sphere and the civil government for the well-being of its citizens. Uh, and, and, and the truth is, we don't always like what the civil magistrate is doing. But uh, we are told from Romans 13 in your word to recognize the, 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 uh, the divine sanction of government. Uh, so, Lord, uh, there, there are so many issues that we have to explore and evaluate afresh in every age. And... and uh, we need great guidance. We need instruction. We need good pulpit instruction, Lord. We need you to bless the ministry of the preaching. We need you to bless the ministry of, of our own private reading and devotion. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would lead the church on to glory. You are the one who leads us. And we are to be, as Paul says, led by the Spirit, not by the desires of the flesh, which lead to death, but through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the flesh and uh, lead on to life. If you, by the Spirit we mortify the deeds of the flesh, we will live. We want to be alive today and we want to be alive forevermore in the presence of God. 
And so we cry out to you, Holy Spirit, and ask you that you might fill up each of us individually and corporately as a church. And that we would abound not only in knowledge, but in holiness. Uh, for the need, again, as we constantly pray, O oh Lord, is for a true Christian witness in this hour. There are so few true Christians. There are so few true churches. Who can deny it? Nobody is fooled by the pretended Christianity of so many. But we pray that the Christianity that's found in this place would be authentic and saving and living. But only you can make it so, Holy Spirit. Dwell in our midst. Convict us of our sin. Rebuke us where we are erring. And, and, and cause us to conform more and more to the will of God, and to, which is to say of the will of yourself. Would you produce in each of us your own blessed character, uh, causing us to abound in the fruit of the Spirit, which again is the fruit of your own life and your own holiness, O Holy Spirit. And so we pray that the distinction which is uh, to be made between the church and the world, and which you alone can make, will be more and more evident both to us and to the world. Uh, But again, O Lord, as we pray these things, we acknowledge they are all in your hands. Everything, the course of nations, the course of the church, the course of our lives. We can't even make our heart beat a single time. And yet you keep it beating. You cause our bodies to go on. You cause history to unfold. Uh, If if only we, we would know true humility, what it is to bow before your majesty and your sovereignty. We pray that you might continue to instruct the church in these Simple, humble paths. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As a scripture reading, I want to look, I want to look back in Exodus and just notice this, uh, a similarity with the current text. Uh, so as a, as a background reading, you might say Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to Moses. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of the fathers, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed uh, concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up. Out of the affliction of the of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. They will pay heed to what you say and you will and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So uh, or, or and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and you will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians. And as we come to Exodus chapter 11, we will notice, in effect, that that uh, prophetic word is recounted in the mind uh, of Moses. But now let us, in response to God's word, stand and sing the doxology.
Please be seated. And, and look on with me in the bulletin at the Apostles' Creed. And read along with me in confessing uh, these ancient words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now as we prepare uh, to hear God's word, both read and preached, let us stand together and sing hymn number 57.
please be seated. And look on with me on Exodus 11. I had thought that we would take the 10th plague as one, but uh, it is way too much text. And so we'll look at the warning of the 10th plague, and then we'll look at the 10th plague. So just Exodus 11 tonight. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the, of, of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall not be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, and you, uh, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all the wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We acknowledge that it is full of life and power. Uh, though it appears to us uh, through human weakness, whether read uh, or even in the very form of a book. Uh, but here, here are the words of life. Where else will we turn? We ask you that through the preaching, O oh God, you might open up your word to us and, and cause it to make a further entry into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, we have here come to the 10th and the final plague. We considered together the three triplets, plagues 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and uh, six through, uh, seven through nine, uh, seeing each of them as having their own distinct place, and so too we should view the tenth plague. It's interesting to notice how it unfolds, and as I say, we're not looking at the whole uh, of that narrative, just the initial step, which is the warning. We read in uh, chapter 10, verse 29, that Moses is basically done with Pharaoh. That's where we left off, uh, Pharaoh saying, uh, get away from me, you'll never see me again. Uh, and Moses said, you're right. And uh, that was the abrupt ending. It would seem that the two were done with one another. And so as we come to chapter 11, it's a little bit confusing to find them in chapter uh, or in verses uh, four through eight uh, still talking. Uh, but before we get to verses four through eight, we find that the narrator recounting what the Lord had said to Moses in verses one through three, which is very similar to what we read earlier in chapter three. In fact, uh, Kyle and Dillage helpfully pointed out here and also in another place, if you had the word had, now the Lord had said to Moses, and you read that and you compare it with what he said, what he had said earlier in chapter 3, you realize 
uh, the narrator is just recounting what the Lord had earlier told Moses. Uh, and then, uh, here's the other point. If you look to verses 9 and 10, uh, you have something similar. Again, just add the word had, and instead of then, have the word as. And you have something like this. As the Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied. And then verse 10, Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and so on. And so, uh, the author here is recounting, again, what the Lord had said, to put all that uh, we have here in its proper context. Everything was going, we see, just as the Lord had said it would, which is the exact point we are meant to see. Moses performed all these signs, all nine, and now, uh, and now uh, there was one more, yet one more. And yet, at no point did we find that Pharaoh's hard heart uh, relented or yielded to the Lord or to Moses. But with the final climactic sign, we discover, just as the Lord had said, Pharaoh would be broken by it. And so he would thrust the people out of the land. If the nine plagues would not do, God says, I assure you, the tenth will. So happy would the Egyptians be to see them go, they would even offer them gifts as they thrust them out. But the real focus of chapter 11 is verses 4 through 8, where we have the final exchange between Pharaoh and Moses. That which we saw in chapter 10, verses 28 and uh, 29, uh, is expanded just a little bit. It is concluded. And so this isn't a separate incident. This is just the same incident, that final exchange, concluded. As before, we see how the plague is foretold before it occurs. Doing so makes it certain that this calamity comes from the Lord. And we also discover the meaning of the plague in advance, which is the main thing we will consider. Also, uh, if you look at verse 8, the end of verse 8, that Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. That uh, matches very nicely with what we have in chapter 10, verse 29. You are right, I shall never see your face again. It's the same sense because it's the same scene. Uh, it is an abrupt and, uh, let us be honest, because the text is honest, uh, an angry departure on the part of Moses from the presence of Pharaoh. And so the question we have here, as before with the other plagues, is what the precise significance of it is uh, here as it is foretold in advance. What is the Lord indicating and revealing to us and to Pharaoh by this plague? And the first thing I think we must notice here. Uh, and it's something that I'm consistently struck by as these plagues have been unfolding, is the amazing patience of the Lord. Later on in Exodus, uh, and remember, the whole of the book of Exodus is a revelation of the name Jehovah. The Lord even makes that explicit. explicit. He says, your fathers didn't know me by this name, but you will. In other words, uh, everything that I will reveal to you will reveal the significance of the name uh, the Lord or Jehovah. Uh, and and uh, seeing Exodus in this way, I, I think perhaps the most significant words that are uttered in the book of Exodus are either found in chapter 3, where he says, I am who I am, or in chapter 34, where Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord shows him his glory, not surprisingly, by revealing who he is. 
The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Uh, generations, plural. And that is the point I think we are able to see in the plagues, the ten plagues considered together, especially as we come to the end. It is the precise truth that is stated here. The meaning of the name Jehovah, the Lord, the Lord. Or the Lord, the Lord God, actually. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and so forth. What we notice in the plagues, uh, beloved, is both aspects of the name. Both the compassion and the fury of his wrath. We notice first how true it is for the Lord to say that he is slow to anger. Isn't that what we see in the ten plagues? That he doesn't get rid of Pharaoh all at once, but he does so little by little by little. How quickly the, the Lord might have uh, dealt with the evil king Pharaoh. He even says uh, in chapter 9 verse 15 as we saw last time. That, uh, that the Lord could have killed Pharaoh all at once. He could have sent a pestilence uh, and his life would be over just like that. One stroke and Pharaoh would have been dead and the people delivered. And the exodus would have happened just like that. But what we notice about the Lord again is his long suffering. That he is indeed slow to anger. He suffers long with the evil king. He sends one plague after another in order to show this about himself. That he is patient. That in dealing with great wickedness, he is once more slow to anger. He does not act in haste when dealing with the wicked. We might wish that he did, but he doesn't. That's what he tells us clearly about himself. In Exodus, as he reveals the meaning of the name, and he demonstrates it through his actions. He is, it would almost seem, reluctant to punish the evil man. Oh, that he would turn from his sin as the later uh, prophets would cry, such as Ezekiel. Yes, but do not misunderstand. He will not tarry forever. Though he waits, he tells us, he will certainly punish the evildoer, for all of his amazing patience uh, and grace and love and mercy. Yet, he says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And when he does so, when uh, his, his slow anger or the, the slow approach of his anger, I think I should say, has come to an end. When the fury of his wrath appears, it will be swift and decisive and final. There will be no opportunity to repent then. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. No, not if they refuse to repent. Especially in the presence of such amazing long-suffering. And how awful his judgments will appear then. Especially as they follow upon such amazing patience. And so many opportunities to repent. How strongly the sinner's conscience will pang him. Knowing the Lord gave him chance after chance after chance to repent. 
and to avert such terrible woe. Matthew Henry says, if men will not approve the gradual advances of divine judgment, they must thank themselves if they find that the worst was reserved for last. And so that is exactly what we see here as we come to the tenth plague. The worst was reserved for last. And Pharaoh only had himself to thank for that. But let us see uh, in all of this the truth of both statements as the Lord indicates uh, to us in Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 and 7. And let us adore the name of Jehovah or the Lord whose compassion is compassion is as great as his judgment. But never is one canceled out by the other. Each is equally great and certain. Just as certain as he is to be slow to anger and abound in compassion, so is he certain to punish the wicked. Again, let us not imagine that with God one uh, is outweighed by the other or canceled by the other, but both equally exist in infinite measure side by side as divine attributes. Let us, let us never think that we are, we are able to hide under the refuge of his compassion, thinking he will not judge. Just to misunderstand the name. But let us not forget at the same time that though he declares his determination to punish the evildoer, and he will do so certainly, that his compassions also are very great. Especially when we wonder why it is that he suffers evil, uh, so much evil for so long. And having said that, let me just say very briefly, that this really isn't the point of the sermon. Let us recognize how it is that the cross explains the fullness of the name. That both uh, the justice and the mercy of God come together in perfect measure and perfect fullness. Which is actually what we read earlier in Psalm 85 in the, the Psalter reading in the morning. That righteousness and, and peace kiss together. Both the justice of God against sin or the wrath revealed from heaven. It meets, it doesn't overturn, it meets the loving kindness and the mercy and the peace of the Lord. And so only the cross really, not the ten plagues, but the cross. Only the cross is capable of explaining how God is both in perfect measure. Again, his compassion seen not as the negation of his justice, but according to it. And in reality, it's always like this. But the second thing we notice, and I confess this isn't the main point of the passage, but it's something that I think is worthy of our attention. As the book of Exodus is as much a character study of the prophet Moses as it is anything else. The anger of Moses. It's fascinating to read here, uh, and I think it's helpful as well uh, to find the addition of verses 4 through 8, or the expansion uh, from 10, 28, and 29, then expanded in chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. And the last thing we read is that he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. What do we make of that? I think it's worth considering. Since again, as I say, the man Moses is so central. The, the narrative began with his call. And, and as we see uh, the life of the prophet unfold, we are meant to notice his own uh, progression. His own, uh, his own faith, his own holiness, and so forth, just as we saw in the patriarchs. And here he stands before Pharaoh as the prophet, and before the people as their deliverer. Later on, we will read in the Pentateuch that he was the meekest man who ever lived, that is, until Christ came into the world. Moses, uh, let us see clearly, really resembles Christ in so many ways. 
and is a fitting forerunner to him in the Old Testament. But what do we make of his anger? We see it in his meekness, but do we see it in his anger? Well, I would suggest to you without hesitation that we do. And that his anger, in fact, is yet another indication of his goodness and even his greatness as a prophet and a man of God. And again, as I say, as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. Do you know that just as Jesus was grieved, so too he was angered at times? And that not all anger is sinful. There's sinful anger, but that is not to say that all anger is sinful. Pharaoh was acting like a madman here, if you think of it. He would rather lose all the firstborn of the nation than yield to God. It was incredible wickedness. It was incredible madness. It was sin taken to the ultimate extreme. The folly of the king bringing suffering upon the nation. And so I say again, let us remember that not all anger is unrighteous. And not all anger is sin. Some anger, in fact is consistent with the goodness and the holiness of the Lord. It is not wrong to be angry at sin. It is rather an indication of spiritual life. Let me say that again. It is rather an indication of spiritual life. The man who is spiritually alive is the man who is capable of a righteous anger. How can we not, beloved, have strong passions in the face of strong and alarming sin? And so we read the the righteous man, Moses, went out in hot anger. Let me give you an illustration. This week I I saw a clip uh, of uh, something that happened in Argentina, the lower house of uh, parliament there, passed a bill. I was actually encouraged to realize that abortion was illegal in Argentina, but the lower house in Argentina passed a bill uh, legalizing um, abortion pending uh, the, the upper house and I guess the presidency. I don't know the exact politics there. But what I, what I saw was not <laughs> that that happened, but the reaction. People were out in the streets celebrating, young women uh, dancing and even crying, tears of joy. It was for them like a kind of religious experience and I tell you I felt anger I felt incredible anger in fact I felt even a satisfaction in God's justice that he will damn such people to hell and I equally wonder with great anger that so many Christians today are indifferent to such things as though they were not happening already in our own country If that cannot make you angry, beloved, nothing can. You have let the world and its great wickedness lull you to sleep. And so I'm saying that anger is often a measure of spiritual life. And even of the goodness of the man. Certainly that was true of Moses. How can the righteous man look on great evil with indifference? How can he look upon great sin and feel nothing? He cannot. But let us see next. And surely this is the main point of the text. The significance of the death of the firstborn. This is the final plague which will bring Egypt to its knees. And cause them to drive the Israelites out from their midst completely. And again, uh, so happy will they be that they will give them gifts as they leave. They will plunder the Egyptians. Uh, And we have to admit that this is a terrible and a drastic measure. 
That the Lord comes with his own fury in this way. And so the first thing that we notice here, as we've seen, is how this was to be the decisive blow. And here I'm somewhat repeating an earlier point, but since it's the main point, the judgment of the Lord which falls upon Egypt, uh, let us consider it further. The Lord says, one more plague will I bring. Just one more. Again, here is the decisive and the final blow. Nothing further than this was needed. And when we consider what this plague was, the death of the firstborn, who can question that the Lord's judgments are terrible and woeful and to be feared? That it is indeed, as we will later see in the book of Hebrews, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or as Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 10, don't fear man who can kill the body, fear he who can kill the body and throw your soul into hell. And as Matthew Henry says, what is hell but this? Again, to fall into the hands of the living God, speaking of his, uh, of his wrath. Again, Jesus in the Gospels tells us not to fear man, but to fear God. Do you doubt that he meant it when we consider what he does here? Here is God threatening to kill the firstborn of the land. You see here, God says, I am going out into the midst of the land. I am going to visit her in judgment and I will kill all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And who can resist my might? Again, here is the Lord, the Lord coming forth in judgment. Here is a judgment we read on individuals and a judgment on nations. None are exempt. The poor and the rich alike will suffer this fate. Who can escape his judgment once it comes? And here is, uh, of course, we are meant to see a fitting picture of the woe that will befall the wicked at the last day. The Lord coming with irresistible might and unescapable power or inescapable, excuse me. Unspeakable horrors and woes will befall man. What a terrible day the last day will be for the wicked. There, as here, the Lord will declare to the wicked, but one more judgment I have reserved for you, and it will be the worst by far. It will come upon you with swift and sudden force, like an inescapable flood of God's wrath bursting forth. And what will men do then, once the Lord comes in judgment? Well, if you read Revelation, you know they'll wish they had never been born. They will wish they could die, if only they could bring an end to it. And yet, as soon as I say that, let us also realize or, or let us also see what David saw when he counted his men. And, and if you remember, the Lord was angry with David and he gave him three options. Uh, there was I, I don't remember the first two, but I do remember the last that the Lord would come against David with the angel of the Lord, the sword of the angel of the Lord. Do you remember what David says in 1 Corinthians, or uh, is it 1st or 2nd? I don't remember. Uh, 21 verse 13. It's 1st Corinthians. He says, it's better to fall into the hands of God than to fall into the hands of men. Isn't it interesting to notice that reversal? That for the wicked, there is no more terrible fate than to fall into the hands of the Lord where there is no refuge once he comes in judgment. But for the righteous, it is entirely the opposite. The worst thing that could possibly befall us so far as we are concerned is to fall into the hands of men. But to fall into the hands of God, as David says in that same statement, 
is to recognize that for, with the Lord there is mercy. There is always mercy for the righteous. And so only the righteous are truly able to say, though he comes against me, his mercies are very great and I shall be saved. Only do not let me fall into the hands of men. That leads me to make the next point concerning the significance of uh, this plague foretold. And that is the way that the Lord is making Pharaoh understand how he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Which is exactly what he says, and we've seen it before, but here again in verse 7, that you may understand, speaking to Pharaoh, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is something that the Lord's judgments are meant to indicate and to make clear. Let Egypt and Israel see that the Lord makes it so. That the distinction between the church and the world exists because of him. And so let us behold his judgments, whether in scripture or in our own day, and consider his judgment to come and see that it is so. Let us see that the Lord makes a distinction. The great effect of the last day, Jesus tells us, is that it will make a distinction. That when uh, he comes in judgment, he will gather uh, the nations before him and he will separate the wicked from the righteous. And there it will become evident for all to see who was the Lord's and who was not. There Jesus will place the sheep on his right hand with a word of commendation and the goats on his left with a word of condemnation. Matthew chapter 25. Not only that, but he has already set his providence in motion to make it clear in history, as here in the book of Exodus. But if you keep reading the history recorded in the Bible and even beyond up to the present day, that is the unmistakable thing you will always notice. How the church is distinct from the world. How the Lord has a way of making this obvious for all to see. And it is for this reason that all of Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, constantly calls the church to, to realize her true position in relation to the world and to do all she can uh, uh, to, to realize this, her true purpose and identity, to make it appear that she really is distinct, holy, the peculiar possession of the Lord, and to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's interesting, uh, as a matter of fact, to notice how this point is made not only in verse 7, but also in verses 1 through 3. How the people were beginning to find favor in the midst of Israel, and, and Moses especially. The Lord was making a distinction. He was setting the church apart. Which is something, uh, let us admit, again, in history, we know it will be clear on the last day, but in history, we acknowledge it isn't always true. There isn't always uh, the favor which Moses and the people enjoyed at this moment, enjoyed by people, the people of God in every age. But it is sometimes true that God so contends for his church that he makes even the world admire us and show us favor. And let us pray for such times in our own day. Not that the world would be against us, but that the world would be for us and favorable to us and that the Lord would make it so. But we also notice again here the distinction between the visible and invisible church. Something I cannot help but notice in the way the Lord is making this distinction. And he is showing such amazing favor to Israel. Even though we know that Israel considered as a body or a visible church was unbelieving and in the wilderness would become apostate. 
Even still, he says, I will make this distinction and I will show favor to my church. Isn't that amazing to consider? If Israel had been believing, let us pretend an Orthodox Presbyterian church, we might be uh, more, uh, more willing to accept this. But when you realize here was a model of unbelief against which the New Testament warns, don't fall in unbelief like they did. Yet God was still favorable. Do you realize how much favor God shows to the visible church? Though the number of those who are saved in her midst are few. I am certain that even though this was an unbelieving and apostate generation, there were still some believers in this visible church. Moses, for instance, no doubt, was a man of faith, as the book of Hebrews tells us. Just as that same book warns us against the unbelief and the apostasy of that generation. There were just a few believers, but that was enough for God. Just a few believers was enough for God to seek to preserve the distinction between the church and the world. If only for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of the salvation of just a few. The next thing we should see is the significance of the firstborn. There is much that could be said here. Obviously, in the ancient culture, much more uh, than our own, there was great significance tied to the firstborn. The ancients were not such egalitarians as we are. But to bolster this, the Lord will say in chapter 13, as we'll soon see, that the firstborn belongs to me. Uh, And so at this moment in chapter 11 and chapter 13, the significance of the firstborn is something that should really stand out to us. And we're meant to ask, what is the significance of the firstborn? Well, for one thing, uh, we have here another clear indication of the distinction that God is making between Egypt and Israel. He kills the firstborn of Egypt. He declares the firstborn of Israel that belongs to him. Chapter 13, uh, verse 1, I think it is. What a remarkable distinction that is. Uh, but still, we're left with the, 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 the question, why the firstborn? What is the significance of the firstborn. And here I cannot read of the firstborn, uh, especially the death of the firstborn, and not think of Christ. And let me tell you what I mean. What I see when I think of the death of the firstborn is that judgment terminates. It reaches its full measure when the firstborn is slain. Uh, an amazing uh, principle that we discover in the Old Testament, which is very helpful in explaining the cross to us. Exodus is, in the Old Testament, the greatest judgment. And here, in the last plague, is the greatest act of judgment in the book of the greatest judgment. But also in Exodus, we have the great act of salvation. Old Testament salvation is found here, when God delivered the people from Israel, or from Egypt, excuse me. And so you have judgment and salvation coming together in the death of the firstborn. Are you beginning to follow me? But you see, in both, the Lord is acting. Both are the Lord's doing. And both hinges upon the death of the firstborn. Salvation for Israel, judgment for Egypt. Yes, and we know Christ is God's firstborn. Not only is he the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son. That is, the only real, and is, uh, the only real Son of God, essentially, within the Godhead. God the Son But also, he is, as the New Testament tells us, in several places, but especially I'm thinking here of Romans chapter 8, he is the firstborn among many brethren. 
of those who would have a place in God's family as sons, that is, members of the invisible church, he is the firstborn. He's the firstborn son. And how does he appear to be so to us who would be sons along with him? The answer is plain, as Paul indicates to us in that same chapter and uh, in the surrounding verses. It's when he too is slain as the firstborn. That is, by taking this decisive, climactic act of judgment upon himself. For our sakes, he is the firstborn who was slain. As God acted here against Pharaoh in Egypt, so he acted there at Calvary in the same way. Where he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Yes, and how will he not with him freely give us all things? And how will we fail to see because of this, uh, just a, a verse or two before, that he works all things together for our good? Just as Paul also says, how will we fail to see him as the firstborn among many brethren? As in his death, he becomes the author of our salvation. And so the focus, the death of the firstborn, is the same in the New Testament as it is in the Old Testament. That through the death of the firstborn, God acts in judgment. He deals with sin, listen, in a final, climactic, irreversible way. And by the same means, salvation flows to the church. Don't you see it here in the Exodus? We find the same thing at the cross. Through judgment comes salvation. And especially through the judgment which befalls the firstborn. God is showing us there is no greater judgment than this which can befall man. Surely what we read here helps us to see it. Once God goes this far, he can go no farther. Or he need go no farther. And so when the same judgment befalls his own son. As befell Egypt here. We need not doubt that his justice was really satisfied with that sacrifice. That no greater act could have demonstrated how finally and fully God dealt with our sin. Than when he laid it upon his own dear son on the cross. And that salvation therefore really has been achieved for the church. The death he died, Paul tells us, he died, to, he died to sin once for all. Let us see that it is so. Let us see in the Exodus, in the tenth plague, the finality of the death of the firstborn. But then, lastly, with regard to the significance of the, of the death of uh, the firstborn or the final plague, we must also notice the sovereignty of God. And it's a point that comes up again and again, but it's a point that's meant to. In history, Pharaoh stands out as a singular instance of the sovereignty of God, which is why this uh, event is celebrated in the Old Testament. It's why it was celebrated by the Israelites it, uh, on their Sabbath worship, as the Lord indicates in Deuteronomy. It's why uh, the Apostle Paul, in making his point as strongly as he can, who are you, O man, to question God in describing the sovereignty of God, both in judgment and in salvation, points to this instance. Pharaoh. It's why Martin Luther, in his great work, uh, The Bondage of the Will, points to Pharaoh. Here is a great instance of the sovereignty of God. Let us see it again and again, so long as we deal with the man Pharaoh. And what we see in his downfall and his hard heart is how, God, uh, is how much God is in control. There is nothing which he does not control, not even the heart of the wicked king. 
All of it he uses for his own glory and his own peculiar purpose. I, I think the question that we have, and which I'm about to answer, is what is that purpose? Uh, and in one sense you can say, we don't really know because God is sovereign, isn't he? But in another sense you can say, we can, because God in his sovereignty is revealing to us what that purpose is. Well, what is it? God has a plan for individuals. He has a plan for nations. He has a plan for kings, even the wicked king. He has a plan for all, for you and me. And all of it has this end in view. And that is, you could say for his own glory, of course. But let me be more specific. How does he manifest his glory in history? It is by securing and promoting the happiness of the church. Isn't that comforting to hear? And that's exactly the message of Exodus. All of his providences exercise through his sovereign will, secure and promote the happiness of the church. That's the great aim he is seeking. Of course, we see here, this is important to recognize, it doesn't happen all at once. Israel must wait in her bondage 400 years, but it does happen. Sometimes it takes generations to happen. And again, we have to recognize that nowhere will it become more clear that this is what the Lord was contending for all along than on the last day. But let us be certain that this is his glorious purpose always. The happiness and the salvation of his church. The reality, as we know from all the Old Testament history, as well as what is said in Ephesians, let me connect Exodus to Ephesians now, is that the real driving force of history is God's desire and plan to build his church, period. His desire and his plan to build his church. Everything else is secondary. All that happens in history under and according to his sovereign will is subservient to this one purpose. And I know that is so, not only because of what I read in Exodus, but because, more importantly, what I read in Ephesians. Listen to just a couple of the passages where now the mystery is revealed to the church, if it had not been clear enough in the old book. He made known, verse 9 of chapter 1, to us the mystery of his will. In other words, what is he doing? What has he been doing all along? According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. The summing up of all things in Christ. He is the focal point in history. How does it appear to be so? Ephesians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is something you see which God is making evident for all to see, even those in the heavenly places. If only we could see this. If only the mystery now revealed were as plain and as clear to us as it was to Paul. How happy we would be now We would not, or we need not, excuse me, wait for the mystery to be revealed. It has been revealed. What is the plan of God in history? It's been revealed to us, Paul says, upon whom the end of the ages has fallen. We can read the book of Exodus with greater profit than the Old Testament saint ever could. 
Christ now has made it clear what God, uh, God's great purpose is in history. What he was doing then and what he's doing now. And what he'll keep on doing right up to the end of history. It's the same thing that we see here in Exodus. It's what we find when Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, was crucified in seeming obscurity. It's what the Lord is doing now. Through a small gathering of Christians here in Tallahassee. Do you know what he's doing? Well, Paul tells us he's displaying and manifesting his own wisdom and his purpose for the world. Not for us, you see, but for the world. The grand design and plan of God's sovereignty with reference to the cosmos. One which he demonstrates only through the church. Namely, the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the thing we are meant to see and to look for as history unfolds before our eyes. Everything else is secondary. Everything that happens in history in our own day or in another serves this great purpose. Nothing is above it or beside it. All falls beneath it as the unfolding of this one glorious purpose. Again, which is God's purpose for the world realized through the church. And we of all people as Christians are meant to see it. And to face these evil times with this certainty that all of God's purposes are summed up and realized through Jesus Christ. They're all meant to display his glory and his salvation and his lordship over the whole cosmos. And how does he bring it to pass? I've already said it, but let me say it again. He brings it to pass, Paul says, always through the church. Not through angelic beings, not through the rulers and principalities of this world, but through the church. Let us see it in ancient times. Let us see how he brought it to pass through the, through the Israelites, calling them out of Egypt. And let us see that it is equally, if not more so true today, that God is working something far greater in the church than can be found anywhere else. And while the world is going mad over this or that policy or this or that politician, let us settle our minds with a certain knowledge that what God is doing through the church surpasses it all. We of all people are meant to know what is the Apostle Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 1. The surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. And let us respond to God's word in song by standing and singing together hymn number 193.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you.